Well, we're back talking about the Dobbs case and Roe versus, <laughs> Roe versus Wade. You have to do the introduction. You're part two. This, this is part two of our episode, Parallel Barking. You know who we are. Yeah, well, yeah. And I've been trying to make Ariana feel better about the case. Um, it's not working. It's not working. But we are finding all kinds of interesting things that are that are going on. Um, we haven't really talked about two things. One is the, the actual substance of the decision, and the other is the leak itself. And maybe for the second part of the podcast, we can talk about those two. Okay. So the substance of the, the draft decision? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I, part, parts of it, I, I just thought were, um, interesting that i mean well i actually want to hear your take because you're the lawyer you're the constitutional law expert uh, no no yes remember i'm i'm a uh, i'm an outlier here the the american academic constitutional aristocracy and i uh don't often see eye to eye that doesn't uh, so, matter. All right. Well, you're not going to get the uh, the orthodox view. Uh, and what we have are two orthodoxies here, that of the majority and that of likely the a very powerful set of dissenting opinions. Um, and and there's a lot to dissent from in, in this case. One of them being the, of course, the um, the um, Roe case. The, so let's talk about the substance. Everyone has known for a long, long time that the underlying nature of Roe was jittery. Um, and there hasn't been very many people who continue to defend Roe full on. Uh, the same, and this is what is really scary, and some people have been talking about this, the same can be said for Brown versus Board of Education and the, the foundational case that brought us uh, to what hopefully is a much more enlightened state of relations uh, among uh, race, ethnic, and religious groups in this country, but mostly yeah. racial groups in this country. But the, the underlying basis for the decision is eminently um, one can eminently engage with it. I'm, I'm trying to be tactful. Yeah, uh, and I mean, we've, all, we've all known this uh, virtually. There hasn't been a single confirmation hearing where someone doesn't say, well, you know, I have my qualms about even the supporters of, of a constitutionalization of women's autonomy, right? In the context of, uh, of, <laughs> um, of terminations of pregnancy. They've all said, well, yeah, I got a quibble here and a quibble there. It's, it's so bizarre. I mean, think about that. Can you say that? Say that out loud again. Right. I don't want to allow women to have their own autonomy. Well. No, not well. No. Well, the, the, In the consultation with a doctor. All right. All right. What? Here's a question for you. Here's a question for you, and I've come to think about this more and more. And this is a, a kind of radical position, I suspect. 
why is it that women in this case, anybody. because we're dealing, we're dealing with a, an issue of fundamental importance to women. So I'm focusing on women here, but okay. it applies to everyone. But in this context, it's women in specifically. Why is it that they need someone's permission to take their own autonomy for themselves? We need that protection because obviously people are trying to take it away. That's why. Yes, some people are trying to take it away but we have an open political system here it's it's um this is this is worrisome if in fact um what the decision says is that we're throwing this back into politics then uh this is a moment for women to again in, in our last podcast we ended by talking a little bit about solidarity uh this may be the moment of solidarity for for women as well um, but but the issue here, right, with respect to the the substance of the opinion, which is where we were going, was well, it the the decision, uh, just like the Roe versus Wade decision, technically has been open to question for a long time, and certainly the legal academy, whether you supported the result or not. Um, everyone has had a field day with this case the way they've had a field day with Brown. No one wanted to touch the result, but everyone had a go at the reasoning, right? And so you've developed, in, and in a sense, um, the critical people uh, in both instances really did a tremendous job of undermining popular conceptions of the legitimacy of the result by constantly going and doing their academic BS on, and, and quite rightly, I say academic BS, and of course my academic colleagues are gonna go, oh my God, you should be expelled from the academy. Because it is BS, because heresy. you called well, it. No, but BS not in the sense that their critique is wrong, but BS in the sense that what they what they were doing advertently or inadvertently inadvertently was were conflating what and here again another perversity their effort like alitos to find the perfect set of justification again mm. the search for perfection right but in the process of the search for perfection in the uh support for the result then produces a counter search for perfection that then undermines by in its search the result itself the result yeah. right and so this is a setup that's been 50 years in the making and everyone has had a hand in this everyone has had a hand in this uh and and in a sense we start from uh a contextually um, uh, you know, people forget what the 70s, the early 70s were like. Uh, this was the heady days uh, when it was the conservatives who tended to view the, the court as uh, increasingly illegitimate because they were increasingly following a very specific uh, political ideology. Now the, the shoe is on the other foot and it's the, the, uh, the liberals, so-called liberals, I don't know what these things mean anymore, who now view the court as illegitimate only because the uh, the the justices are no longer aligned politically with with their view. It with just their views, shows yeah. you how these things are are fungible. Um, but 
at the time the decision and it was a, a time when we still sort of believed in the the value of scientific reasoning that in fact if we can use logic and the value of science especially the social sciences that somehow that would be a much greater justification than silly old normative rules and principles and so there was this arc of of of, of, of a underlying determination that if you really truly want this decision to sound and be perfect and again this is both sides the left and the right here are both seeking perfection which is just so profoundly bizarre um that they decided that well we can't really rely on jurisprudence anymore because how can you how can you rely on that for perfection we have to rely on something harder and what can be harder than the social sciences at this point i'm laughing internally i'm laughing hysterically internally uh, at the at, at this notion but the notion stuck uh, especially for lawyers which is another perversity and irony and so everyone loved going to the social sciences and getting data there's nothing more dangerous than a lawyer playing with numbers especially, yeah, what... a, lawyer, especially a lawyer that gets a phd uh, in some quant sort of uh uh field then all of a sudden they start using these numbers yeah. in a field that is that is fundamentally jurisprudential and normative but but there you go and so there's all of this setup so yeah so the the row reasoning which is what alito goes after for 30 pages is eminently subject to attack and rightly so but that's the problem the question isn't the row reasoning and this is something that was very made very clear by fairly conservative justices in the casey decision in the 1990s the issue isn't the rationale of 1970 whatever the question is the result and that result could be supported jurisprudentially alito avoids this and he avoids this with a very neat trick right but you could have done that and instead he goes after the easy target the the sort of the quote-unquote low-hanging fruit and that low-hanging fruit was well you know the social science that they use uh and the rationale of roe was just completely wrong and you know and there are all kinds of people who to some extent buy this uh but that's that's not what should have been the center of the discussion the center of the discussion should have been the result and the means for supporting it should have been normative and jurisprudential not based on this kind of 70s uh, pop uh, social science stuff that was fashionable at the time. Um, and, and that's the pity. We'll see what the, the dissents do. And I suspect they don't get so it your point, your point is because that decision relied on social sciences instead of the for its normative- justification, for its Right, justification. right, for the justification. Instead of the normative jurisprudence that we could that relying on that and then going back to that we, we could have used those to actually lean on we can't really do that anymore because those weren't used though those rules basically right. those processes weren't followed. right 
And, and that's the really interesting part of Alito's uh, opinion and why we this becomes a federalism case rather than a constitutional case, because the conservatives are as weak in jurisprudence, again, because they're creatures of, of American legal education from the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, which another podcast I find to be a horrifically uh, uh, enormous catastrophic failure because it produces this uh, in the form of, of people who purport to uh, to serve the nation and in the role of judge, uh, judges at the highest court, uh, but a horrible failure of legal education. The, the traditionalists are as incapable of the kind of jurisprudential analysis that was the at the heart of the uh, development of our foundational jurisprudence in the early 19th century uh, as the liberals the quote-unquote liberals or progressives in this case. I hate using those terms, but that's what everyone uses. Well, for. I mean, how else are you going to define right. the groups that are- Right, and because they're incapable of doing it, they do two things. One we've already talked about in the last podcast, which was the the, the, the turn to federalism. Oh, right. We can't do it. Let's leave it to the state. Well, how are the states going to do this? They're not going to be able to rely on science. Uh, they've just mocked it for 30 pages. They're going to have to rely on something else, which is probably some kind of normative value, who we are as, as a nation or as a people by reference to uh, normative baselines written into their constitution and probably the federal constitution as well. So that was part one. But the other thing they did, which, uh, which they've used to some really good effect in the development of modern uh, religion clause jurisprudence is that they relied on a so-called history and tradition test. Eh? And yes, the history and tradition test that unless there is a history and tradition for the embrace of a particular thing, unless this is something, for example, that we can look that existed in 1791 uh, and, and or uh, from 1791 on, has a long and and quite um, in your face kind of, of uh, historical significance in the way in which uh, at least the the official institutions of, of the Americans believe, which is another problem with the historical test. We'll get to that in a second. That in the uh, that with uh, unable to show that there is a history tradition of abortion rights that there is no way that you could read abortion rights into a constitution that was written in, uh, in 1791 or into the 14th Amendment that was written in the 1860s, right? And so they've, they've used this in, in a number of cases in the context of the religion clauses, they use it to support the embedding of religion, religious institutions and religious practices within the practices and operations of the state and the state apparatus. In this case, they use the same kind of, of uh, theory to show that there is no history and tradition of a right to abortion. But again, they're being very selective. Right. Very, so right. we so like to suppress like, ladies. We have a history and tradition, time-honored tradition of suppressing the ladies. Right. But no one, but here's the thing, and, and I'll give you an example. When people talk about 
uh, the lack of gender equality or the idea that in this country, um, it was clear that uh, before the 20th century, uh, no one believed in, uh, in equal rights for women. The people that they normally quote are men. Oh yeah. Right, no one talks about Abigail Adams. No one talks about the women who no doubt in the 18th and 19th century uh, likely had a very different view, but their view apparently didn't count for counting uh, whether there was this robust sense. And the same thing here applies to abortion rights. Yes, everyone who is talking were either people who were given space within the public discourse. Why? Because they were saying things that the, those in that they liked. The public discourse, right. Or because they were- Mons, they were man. There you go. And Look at so all the men the talking argument, about all right. this stuff they know so much about. The argument is against specious. The argument is against is is again uh, not specious in the sense that it's wrong, but specious in the sense that it is incomplete. And if it were incomplete, then the history and tradition would be far more ambiguous and ought to be more worrisome uh, in the course of of doing what the these five justices are are purporting to do. I mean, it's uh, kind of disgusting because I mean. What what he's saying right now is like, hey, let's look back at the um, the Griswold versus Connecticut, you know, founding like when it when it was found unconstitutional to, um, or no, before that, like when contraception and abortion right. were um, offering any information regarding contraception and abortion, like in the Comstock laws, uh -huh. like that we weren't allowed to do that. Right. But, so there's a long history of that until 1965 when we had the Griswold versus Connecticut. So that was the only, that was the only time that, and so why, why did we do it then? Why did we overturn why was it okay then? Oh, well, again, remember that was that was a case involving, uh, I believe that that was a, a married couple. Um, and and the, the and, and, and in a sense with the, the majority here, the purported majority, assuming that they hold together, again, all these caveats, um, is that in fact, you're looking at, you're comparing apples and oranges, that when you're talking about Griswold, you're talking about something that is so different from what we're talking about here, uh, that um, that really the case may have very little application, uh, and they tend to read those cases very conservatively. But again, it's not implausible their readings of those cases. It just um, it it's just that they tend to read it in a way that isn't necessarily the only way in which in which you can read it. Now, having said that. Um, I want to keep us where where we are, which is the the result in row that okay. is women's autonomy, and that for me is the most striking failure of the decision. Hiding behind federalism, a uh, jurisprudence, uh, a kind of reactive jurisprudence, and late to the ball game jurisprudence of federalism, and hiding behind very narrow. Uh, readings of and distinctions of the of the other cases, we never get or the court is 
able to avoid the much harder case about women's autonomy as women and therefore as beings that are different from men in one critical respect. I'm sure in many other critical what, what do you mean? One, in one critical respect. Is this the like kindergarten cop style? Boys well, have a right, right. Boys have a, a, a that and girls have a that. Uh-huh. Right. Um, but that is really something that is quite worthy of discussion within the constitutional framework in the same way that we worry about the autonomy of persons irrespective of their ethnicity, right? Irrespective of their national origins, irrespective increasingly of their uh, abilities or of their, um, we don't say disabilities anymore, we say their, um, uh, their, um, their abilities, mm -hmm. right? The, the differential nature. I was gonna let you struggle there for a minute. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, the vocabulary, Sorry. vocabulary is changing and probably all this vocabulary is going to be uh, obsolete in, in a short time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, and, it, and it really is a pity. And so what they, in a sense, what they did was they said, well, we don't like the, the we certainly hate the reasoning in Roe. And therefore we hate Casey's justification. We hate the result in Roe. And therefore we really hate Casey why did they go ahead and do that? Uh, and they did it on the thinnest of reads, which was um, the stare decisis, that is the binding nature of precedent, which we talked about in our last podcast. Mm -hmm. I said, but having done that, then having gotten rid of both, we're not going to give you a substitute. We're actually not going to have the conversation that right. we're having that, that led us to, and their justification is, well, that's really not for us to do. Right. It seems like the Supreme Court for the last few years has just really deflected all of the really important decisions off to the states. Uh, we but, don't really but, want to but, deal with it. Part of me, part of me, look, part of me is not, is I'm distressed, but part of me is not distressed. Everyone loves it when the Supreme Court does this, when the result is one is that for them. their belief. Mm -hmm. But you really want these nine people with whom you have very little in common and in whom you have to really trust that they can get out of their own personal weirdnesses, biases, uh, worldviews and the like, and that they become wholly, wholly invested in the principles, uh, cultures and the like of American jurisprudence to then make these profoundly uh, political and political generative decisions for the nation. Well, now, according to Alita's opinion, it doesn't really matter what they exactly. say. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And that's the funny, right? So they, they, they've now not only crashed this, so we're not going to talk about the fundamental issue, which we should be talking about. But in any case, and you hit it on the head, it doesn't matter anymore since we've demolished stare decisis and the value of our president. I don't really care about presidents anymore, so. Which means, which means if this holds, where is it that you should be having these conversations about women's autonomy? In, in, the, church, in, in the churches, 
in business, in social oh, groups. This is exactly what I was Congress. saying to sister earlier. I was like, well, looks like we're going to have to be relying on our employers for social protections a little bit no. more. And again, this goes back to my point. The minute you have to rely on someone you've lost, women are going to have to develop modalities of empowerment mm -hmm. uh, that uh, that makes it less critical for them to rely on. Right. Husband. We, father, yeah, we need to business. get independent. Independent. You need to be autonomous in solidarity with everyone whom you love, but you need to do, and, and that now the conversation is now just not in the political branches, but in order for, I think, for anyone who, who really has a, a strong sense of the value of autonomy, uh, it really has to go not just within, but given the nature of our political culture, well beyond yeah. the four corners of the uh, uh, representative government, because this really isn't a question about relying on representative government as our new parent but on relying on our ability to construct and maintain what we believe to be um, social and other institutional uh, arrangements and beliefs and understandings uh, that accord with our own sense of the way things ought to work or that provide us with a space in which we can act on those even if other people have different views. This is a very, very different way of looking at it um, and in, in part, I mean, part of me really wonders whether we have to some extent, and this is a critique that, that I've had for a number of years, and, and I'm not the only one, there are a number of people who've been worrying about this, but while the going was good, everyone said, well, yeah, we'll worry about it later because the decisions mm -hmm. are going my way, so I'm not going to really rock the boat, which was dumb in the long run, but smart in the short run, uh, and that is, do you really want to develop a society in this country that is wholly dependent on a master, a husband, a father, an administrative agency, a state, a representative. You're trying to make me mad. Boss, a boss. You are. You're trying. You're it's trying not. to push my buttons. That is. I am exactly trying to push your buttons. These are hard questions, though. These are hard questions because I'm not suggesting anarchy. But I am suggesting the dangers of the dangers of a of seeding control. Yes. To someone else, and to what ends, and to what ends, and that goes back. Then that takes us to the ultimate question: In this country, with our political culture, what is or ought to be the role and limits of the state? How much power do you really want to give it? And how much power do you want to give any institutional body or any social body or collective body over you? And to some extent, what, what winds up happening is um, that potentially uh, what this suggests is the need to develop uh, systems of interlocking and blocking organizations uh, that each limit each other's power, each must be accountable in some ways, but 
uh, having enough of them around, each of them protected, so that the individual can move from one to the other or from many to another many, and in that process, protect their own autonomy. You're talking about a system of very complicated private checks and balances. Right, right. Um, uh, and one that I suspect in a mature uh, social order is absolutely necessary given the nature of the 1200 year development of our own culture as it's currently expressed here. It's a very different conversation in China, very different conversation in Eastern Europe, very different conversation in South Asia, very different conversation elsewhere. Uh, maybe going to the same ends, but different conversation. All right, so we got like five minutes. Um, I just want to touch one last little thing. The leak. Okay. Okay. It was, it, it's not good. I mean, it's not a good thing that that was. Certainly not without um, uh, adult diapers. Yeah, I mean, all over the place. it's going to smell. Diapers. And you're going to be embarrassed. It's not a good look. It's you're not a good look. It's not a good look. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a problem. Um, we've got an opinion that undermines the court. We've got a bunch of politicians on the hard left and the hard right that have made it their life's goal to undermine the court. We've got the court shooting itself in the foot left and right. This reminds me, I, I mentioned this to someone else, to that horribly notorious decision in 1857, the Dred Scott case. Oh. Uh, it, took, it took the court almost a generation to regain its legitimacy. Um, but you've got all of this going on. And then at the same time, the court begins to look like the other institutions. That is, it's one that is itself now showing flaws. Yes. Institutional flaws. And that is not, that that is very dangerous. Yeah, they're yes. going to do their investigation. They'll probably find the, the person who's responsible. Uh, they'll probably find someone who's responsible. They're going to have to find, you know, the usual. They're going to have to find a scapegoat. Well, that's cynical. They're going to have to find someone who's connected with this in some way. I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. And then people will just go on and on and do some kind of weird psychocultural analysis of what motivated this person to do this. And that'll entertain people for a while. And that's sort of interesting. But what's more interesting is the damage that it's going to do to the integrity of the court. The people, the people, some people think that it was a good thing just because of transparency, but I think a lot is lost in that because, I mean, it was going to come out eventually. What we're, what, what's not good about this is that, or, yeah, is is the fallout? Is the fallout afterwards? It's just the courts. Courts are not legislatures. Yeah, uh, exactly. This is not a political arena. It shouldn't be. Right. The, the transparency and engagement in decision making that is absolutely necessary in administrative actions in the legislature or in the executive is completely inimical to what is going on in a judicial body. You can test the decision, you can challenge it afterwards, but the process of decision making is not an auction, a political time, or it shouldn't be. Um, at, at least in our tradition, and you know, maybe it's going to change. So all kinds of things are are now in the all kinds of balls are in the air, and that's sort of what we've been discussing over these two podcasts. And I apologize for just going on and on and on uh, about this, but this is this is 
you know, like you said, for a lawyer, it's a, it's a very energizing moment in it's, a way. It's a big deal. And of course, what we'll discover a month from now is that we were completely and totally wrong in every possible way. Yeah, but it was fun while it lasted. Or not. Woof, woof. Bark, bark. Thank you all for listening to our two-parter. We appreciate it. If you have any suggestions, complaints, if you have complaints, we don't want to hear it, but you can send them to us anyway. Parallel Barking Podcast at gmail.com. We appreciate it. Be well. Woof, woof. Bark, bark. Bark, bark.